Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by Books Are Magic in Brooklyn, New York, home to exciting new releases and beloved classics, nooks for children and books to read in them, gumballs filled with poetry, author panels almost every night of the week, story times on the weekends, and plenty of magic. Buy your next forever book or shop online at booksormagic.net. And we're brought to you in part by Loganberry Books, an independently owned and operated bookstore in the historic Larchmere neighborhood of Cleveland, Ohio. Loganberry features a carefully curated collection of new, used, and rare books in all genres for both readers and collectors, with an inventory over 100,000 volumes big. Find your next great read and shop online at loganberrybooks.com. So sometimes I'm nervous to talk to people about race. I was raised as though it was impolite to notice a person's skin color. It was like mentioning somebody's baldness or asking a woman if she was pregnant. It just wasn't done. But it turns out that a lot of the stuff we were raised to believe is imperfect and sometimes even dangerous. It turns out that we need to unpack some of our assumptions about one another that we don't even realize we have. My guest today, Mira Jacob, wrote an entire book after her six-year-old son began asking questions about his own skin color. He is a mixed-race child trying to make sense of our divided world. We should listen to him and to his mom and learn and do better. So let me tell you a little more about our guest. The marvelous Mira Jacob is a novelist, memoirist, illustrator, and cultural critic. Her graphic memoir, Good Talk, a memoir in conversations, was shortlisted for the National Book Critics Circle Award and named as a best book of the year. It is currently in development as a television series with Film 44. Her novel, The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing, was also named one of the best books of the year by Kirkus Reviews, The Boston Globe, Goodreads, and more. Mira Jacobs' work has appeared pretty much everywhere, from the New York Times and Electric Literature to Tin House and Vogue. She's taught creative writing at the New School and was a founding faculty member of the MFA program at Randolph College. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband, documentary filmmaker Jed Rothstein, and their son. Mira Jacob, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you for having me. So I first came to your most recent book, Good talk through an online novel writing class I was taking during the pandemic. And when I opened it, I'm like, shit, I've ordered the wrong book. This is a graphic (laughs) novel. It's a memoir. Why are we reading this? And I was just annoyed at my own self for having ordered the wrong book, but I hadn't. And I opened it. And from page zero, I I mean, I, I found it surprising and beautiful and ultimately this amazing series of conversations. And um, you and I crossed paths recently in Philadelphia at a a conference, which was what jogged my memory to have you come here. So I'm just so glad that you're here. And I want to let you know my goals for this conversation. They're very simple. My My goal for this conversation today is I just want every single person in 
let's say America, but also the world. I just want every, let's be realistic. Mm -hmm. I want every single person in America to buy your book and read your book. And I just want every high school in America to teach your book. Great. I love this goal. Book club (laughs) to read your book. And then of course, like every voter (laughs) to buy and then read your book. So that's that's my goal today. I want to be realistic and just Thank you for being realistic. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. I appreciate that so much. God, because we we need we need your book, and because we're so ridiculously long overdue about the conversations that you start in here with your son and with your family, and I find this beautiful and necessary and such a gift. So thank you for writing it. Oh, thank you for reading. Absolutely. But before I do any more fangirling about good talk, um, let me just start with our usual opening question, which is, will you tell us your story? Yes. Okay. So you know what's so funny when you were saying that I was thinking, yeah, novel writing class. Um, it makes sense that this would be there. Also, I started um, by writing a novel. That was my first book that I published was a novel. And I think very much in novel terms, in terms of like pacing, right? And like, what is an arc of a story? And what kind of one of the things I love about novels, as opposed to short stories, is that you're allowed to go down all these strange alleyways that may or may not get you, you know, ultimately where you need to go. And part of that was also what happened when I was writing this book. So I should back up and tell you that I was writing for 20 something years before I got any of my creative work published. And I had been, you know, writing online and I'd been writing for publications and I'd been editing, but in terms of my short stories or my you know, or even like the novel, um, whenever I showed it to people, they would, they would tell me one of two things. It was for the same pieces, which was really wild. They would say either, um, they would read it and they'd say, you know, I love this, but it's really, you know, because of the way, um, the Indian angle, it's really niche. Um, so I'm just trying to think of like who your audience is because, I just don't know that we have a big Indian audience, so I don't know that it's going to really resonate with anyone. And I would say, okay. Or they would say, I really love the way that you talk about India here, but it's not quite Indian enough. Like oh my our gosh. audience, I think, would really appreciate it if you would go into the whole India thing more. And I'm like, oh what does that mean? Which to me just said this kind of basic thing, which is that there was an ideal Indian in the minds of the editors and the publishing um, kind of infrastructure, and I was not that ideal Indian. And whatever I was, it was not something that they were down with. (sighs) So part of what happened with this book, so, you know, with my first novel, I wrote it for um, 10 years, and I wrote it between... 11 o'clock at night and one in the morning because I also had a full-time job and a kid and my dad was dying at a point and just life, you know. And when that got picked up, it really changed my life because I went from kind of thinking of myself only in my head as I am a writer and no one else really knew it or talked to me about it to suddenly having readers um, and people that were really invested in the book and sort of turning outward-facing with my storytelling. And so part of what you're seeing in this book, and I discussed this a little bit in this book, is a kind of reckoning with both the inside and the outside person. Like, how do you, you know, that's, that question you asked me is such a good one because 
how do you tell your story? And especially for me, the question has always been, how do you tell your story when the minute you tell it, people come up with things like, well, that's not quite Indian or it's too Indian or I don't believe you or maybe you didn't really consider this thing that I would have said about that. Like a lot of times the book deals with um, all sorts of things. It deals with sexuality. It deals with race. It deals with my in-laws. It deals with my parents um, and all the people in the world who will tell you who you are. And a lot of times as a brown woman, I found that the minute I say, well, this is, this is something that happened to me. There's like an entire conga line of people that are like, no, it didn't. Oh my gosh. Or maybe you didn't understand this part of it. Or have you looked at that? Or is there some other way that you could be feeling about this that would be more pleasing to me? And so this book that I wrote, it's called A Memoir and Conversations. And it's just a bunch of drawn conversations, which I realize sounds really silly when I say it, but it was the only way that I could just try to put out into the world what it felt like to be in this body having these conversations where nobody is very excited to let you be who you are much less have agency in that body right and it's and also because i find that it, i mean i hope that i hope that you laughed during the book i actually find it somewhat hilarious that this is the predicament that i'm in right like it's very strange it's very strange to always be in this situation where you're explaining yourself the minute you walk in. And it's also really funny when you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily that great at explaining yourself, which I think is maybe most of us. <laughs> so, um, so this book then is just sort of an attempt to talk about what it is like being the specific human I am, but also what it is like for us to your point in America at this moment when there are so many ways that just being a person like me becomes a political statement and what it's like to kind of try to guide both my kid through that and myself through that and, and my family because I'm in an interracial marriage and my um, partner's parents became very avid Trump supporters and we've been together for 16 years at that point and trying to kind of navigate what it means when People who really love you will also really hurt you. And what do you do with that information? Yeah. Um, there are so many. So your book is hilarious and also heartbreaking. It is absolutely both. I'm laughing out loud when you tell your mother, I think I want to be a writer. And she's like, well, then you're going to have to get better at the maths. And like that, there are so many. That, like there, there are bananas. Like I'm just like I, I, I recognize my – my parents are uh, Italian and Irish, but that was shocking for them to marry each other because they come from these like the Italians yeah. cry at funerals and the, the the Irish laugh at funerals. So, so I I am not I'm not Indian, but I recognize so much of the disconnect between like what you feel to be your truth and then what your family feels to be your truth. So yeah, absolutely, it's hilarious. But the you're East Indian and your husband is Jewish, and some of the questions your mixed race son Z's. Uh, Gosh, was he six? How old was he when you were starting? He was starting? six, yeah, when I, when I started the book. Um, or sorry, when the book starts, I should okay. say. He was six, mm -hmm, 2014. Well, some of the, the questions he asks in this book are so tender and heartbreaking. And I defy anybody, anyone, to read this book and not think long and hard about the damage our adult inability to speak candidly about race and about the things in our country that are broken and fixable. And, and mm -hmm. what, what that's doing to our kids, I think often we think just about, oh, 
what it's doing to us, but our children are watching. I mean, after the shooting of Michael Brown, your son asks, are white people afraid of brown people? Yeah. And I'm a parent. I've got three kids. My youngest is nine. And you, you're never ready for those questions when they come. They're not in any of the parenting books you get, by the way. You're like, where's the part? Where do they cover what I say when they ask yes. about sex mm-hmm. or race? What's cha- <laughs> There's that chapter isn't even in the book. And so it's usually on like a Tuesday morning when you haven't had your coffee yet. And are white people afraid of brown people? How do you know which ones are afraid of you? And like you s- said, your your husband is, is white. So is daddy afraid of us? I'm I'm... I'm getting goosebumps remembering what it felt like to look at those questions for the first time. And I think the overwhelming majority, certainly of white folks I know, have never even thought about what the answer to those questions are. But just parents in general, how do you answer those questions? You want to be honest, right? You want to yeah. be honest. Yep. But you don't want to fuck I, it up. And Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Ugh. I mean, yes. I mean, as you can see, I think I think one of the things hopefully the book is a testimony to is my complete inability to answer those questions, (laughs) because I, you know, what do you say to that? When he said that, when he asked me the first part of those questions, um, because he'd asked, you know, he'd asked, he'd been asking about Michael Brown. He'd asked how far away Ferguson was. Um, And when he asked, are white people afraid of brown people? He actually asked it on the subway. And it was the end of the day and everyone was quiet and smelled bad, like that kind of subway. <laughs> and um, and he goes, and he said it in this like sweet little chirp. So it's like, are white people afraid of brown people? And it just went through the whole train. And like I was the like, record oh. screech? Like, did everyone, yeah. no one looks at anybody everyone, in the subway, but that moment they did. No, everyone looked at us. Everyone <gasps> looked at us. And it was really funny because there was like this white hipster couple across from us who like their whole face was like a twin apology of like, we're so sorry. I was like, yeah. And then there was, um, this man of indeterminate race where I was like, he's sort of squinting at me and I was like, I can't tell what you are thinking right now, but it feels pretty judgy. Whatever it is, you're really, <laughs> you're really waiting for the answer. And then there was the black woman next to me. was like, mm-hmm. Um, and, and so of course what I said to him was sometimes, which is really not the answer you want to give your kid, by the way. Like I was like, well, err on the side of truth. And, um, and and it was really the answer that nobody in the subway was happy about. That's the other thing I will tell you is that all of those people that were looking at me were just like, what does that mean? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. You try raising this six-year-old who is a like having a benevolent alien that's calling you out on all your ugliest human, you know, interactions and saying like, what does this mean? And you're like, I don't know, buddy. I don't know. I'm just inured to it. And I'm just trying to get you through this world with me. Um, but really what I was trying to do was find a safe perch for him because he was a he was a six-year-old boy who would turn into an eight-year-old brown boy. We were afraid of that question, right? Because Absolutely. if we if we answer it if we answer it honestly, then then we're shocked to discover there's racism in this country. And yeah. so if we say no, then we're lucky that there isn't any racism in this country. And I actually loved your answer of sometimes because it bought us some time for me to be like, yeah, what do you say? We'll come, we're circling back, right? This isn't, mm-hmm. we're not going to mm-hmm. solve it on the subway today. This mm-hmm. is going to be part of a larger conversation. And um, 
we're so afraid when it comes to talking about race in this country. We're afraid to talk about it because then if we talk about it, it exists. Right. And then we have to own it. Right. And we have to behave and vote differently. Right. So let's just pretend it doesn't exist. Right. But then that leaves anybody who's ever, I'm a, I am a white teacher in a, a high school, that's, which is 99.9% students of color. Mm-hmm. And I remember in my early days of teaching, I wanted to just like pretend that that didn't exist. We'll just pretend. We'll just not, no one will notice the white lady in the classroom. Maybe they don't notice that I'm white. (laughs) I I remember like a mentor being like, I think, I think they probably, I think they probably know. (laughs) And I I remember the first year I'm like introducing myself and I just like tacked on there. I'm like, oh, by the way, I'm also white. And there was like a little joking around. But what I had signaled there was like, I race is alive in our classroom and it's, we're going to talk about that. And, yeah, and it was just like yeah. this permission. It, it was permission to say, yeah, we're going to muddle through some things. And I, I, I always find it funny that folks um, think that what it means to talk about race is to have all the answers. And that's that's bullshit. If we had all the answers, we no, what it means to talk about race is be like, yeah, a race is race is alive in this situation. We have not, as a country, handled it very well forever, and we're going to say that out loud now. Yeah. And by saying it out loud, it means yeah, we're going to take steps in this country to be better and different. We are going to screw it up. We're going to be on the subway and not have the answers, but by at least saying, let's let's see color, right, <laughs> and let's acknowledge that it probably was hard. For your parents in 1968 and 1969, were they in New Mexico? That's what the- they were. Yeah, they had moved right to New Mexico, yeah. um, and you know, and they were, uh, according, you know, they were the third Indian family in the state of New Mexico, <laughs> um, according to the other two families that had gotten there first. So real, real formal consensus there. Um, anyway, it's so interesting what you're saying. Actually, it's making me think of this thing, which is so. My son two years ago had asked me. You know, we were talking about race and politics and, and, you know, I try to, he's older now, right? So I save the more sophisticated stuff for when he gets older. And he asked me one day, do you think all white people are racist? And, and very quickly, I was like, yeah, of course. But, you know, and I said, and I said it very casually and he looked really upset because he's half white. And I said, let me explain what I mean by that. I've done a lot of race work with white people and I'm, we're talking about Americans, I should say as well. And I said, I've done a lot of race work and I've talked to a lot of my white colleagues who are who are really invested in doing this work and they will they will absolutely say that and it is no great insult for them to say it they will say of course of course I'm racist I was born in this way where I was taught not to see color because it benefited me and I was born into a system where I was taught to ignore all of the pain around me because it benefited me so of course of course that's a thing that I'm working on and of course it's gonna you know I'm gonna be working on it my whole life and but they say it in this very casual way, and and it's not it's not some like horrible shame. It's like, yeah, of course, that's 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 how it happened, and now I'm working with it, and I'm figuring it out. and And I said, so when I say that, I'm not saying it in an insulting way. I think if you are born white in America, you're born into a system that teaches you a kind of a real blindness to your own peril, and unless you're actively working against that every day, it's just really easy to go to sleep. And I would say that about myself as well. You know, I would say, and I said I wouldn't use the word um, racist necessarily to apply to me, but I absolutely know that I can, you know, as a quote unquote model minority, 
my power can absolutely be co-opted in service of this thing. Like, you know, I can always be used against somebody. And I think that's something that you and I, saying this to my son, have to think about is where we fit in and how do we fit in and what are we seeing? Anyway, so I tell him this whole thing. And he's like, no, no. <laughs> and I said, okay. And he said, I don't, I think it's really mean. And I don't like that you said that. And I said, I hear you. You don't have to, you don't have to believe it. This is just my truth. And at first he tried to convince me. He's like, because, and I was like, you know what? I, I respect that you don't feel this way. I do. And I don't, I'm not going to justify it to you. I've done a lot of thinking about this on my own. It's where I'm at, but you don't have to agree with me. It's okay. Like we're good. Okay. So that's like part one of this. And then three weeks later, he calls me from the school and he's like, mom, all, um, all the white kids hate me. All the white kids hate me. And I said, what? And he's like, uh, cause I'm, cause I said the thing about all white people are racist and oh, no. now they're there. And I'm, and they got really mad. And I said, oh yeah, sweetheart, you don't just say that. You can't like, that's not just the thing that you can say. What you were. And he's like, I was on the playground. I was like, yeah, don't say it on the playground. Like, um, and, and, you know, and I was like, well, let's come home. And I was like, come home, we'll talk about it. It's not, it's not that big of a deal. Let's, let's talk about what happened. So he comes home and, um, and it turns out that he had said this thing and the white kids had immediately surrounded him and threatened to kick his ass. And like 20 of them were yelling at him. Then we started getting this wall of texts from all of these white kids that are like, we are going to humiliate you when you come back. There's a plan. We're going to make sure that you never, that you, that everyone knows who you are and how you are. I mean, it went real quick to the scariest place. And, you know, he's in sixth grade and he's terrified. And, and, you know, when he came home, I, I was sort of like, yeah, so listen, that's not a thing that you can say. And it's not because it's not true. It's because the other thing that you are taught when you're a white in America is that is the meanest thing that can be said to you is that, and that anything that you do after someone says that to you is justifiable because they have said the worst thing to you. And so that's what happened with those kids out there. And they're not, they're not bad people. The kids that did this, they're not bad. They, you said something to them that really hurt their feelings and they got scared and they mobilized and they used the thing that they have, which is power. And nobody here's a jerk, right? They're not jerks and you're not a jerk. The, as the text came in and they were more and more threatening, I was like, well, maybe some of these kids are kind of jerks. No, but, <laughs> um, but it was really interesting because the one that really I think about a lot was this, these three young white girls that wrote him and they said, listen, we think that maybe somebody in your house is poisoning you oh and gosh. maybe they've got control of you. And if that's what's happening, just let us know because then we forgive you. Wow. And he'd been really scared until this point. And then he looked at that and he's like, mom, what is this? What is this? And I was like, do you, do you want me to tell you what it is? Or should we just talk about the fact that it makes you feel funny? And I was like, we can just say it with it. Like it makes you feel funny. He goes, no, I want to know what this is. What is this? And I said, well, you said something to them that hurt. And it's no secret that I'm your mom. And it's no secret that at least one of your parents is brown. So what you said to them made them feel unsafe. And so they're going after what, what they were going after one of your parents because you will feel unsafe. They want you to feel scared and upset the way that they feel scared and upset. And he said, they, they think you're mind poisoning me. And I said, yeah. And he was like, oh my God. And it was funny because I suddenly just saw him turn. And he's like, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. What are they doing? And I said, they're scared. And he's like, but they don't have to be so mean. They don't have to be like this. And I was like, no, they don't. Here's what I was going to tell you. 
one of the things that happened. So I was feeling really unmoored by this. I, think I was so. scared that um, what I was most nervous about was that the first time that my son goes out in the world saying something that I actually did say to him. And he said, why didn't you tell me not to say this? Because like, as far as I knew, you didn't believe me in the first place and that's okay. Like, it was fine with me that we disagreed. And he said, no, but I thought about it later and I think you might be right. And I was like, yeah, I think I might be. Um, and he's like, and this makes me think you're really right. And I was like, I mean, I don't know. But I was worried about how the school was going to handle it because, because I'm, you know, like every other brown and black person in America, I've, I've had um, typically bad, uh, bad handling of this with institutions. But I did when the threats started coming and um, the real sort of violence started coming. I was like, okay, I need to, I need to tell someone. So I reached out to his teacher and I said, listen, I need you to know that he said this. And I also want to take responsibility. This is something that I said. And, um, and we are talking right now about how that's not a thing to say um, just on a playground, but he did say it. And I do believe this. And if you would like me to explain why, I'm happy to explain why. But I hope that in your discussion of this, we can talk about more than just why the white kids' feelings are hurt. And his teacher wrote back. And, you know, his teacher is amazing. Um, that year, I had known very little about her because of COVID. I knew she was Black. I knew she was a rule follower. I knew that she was really making sure that he got his stuff together and was very organized. And I really appreciate it. Those are the, like, three things that I knew about her at that point. But I also thought, you know this is going to be a rough conversation. And she wrote back immediately and she said, I wonder, and she said, I'm so sorry to hear about this. It sounds like it was a really hard moment. This is a great opportunity for us to talk about this. This is a great moment for us to talk about if we're going to call ourselves an anti-racist school. And I was like, we do, we call ourselves an anti-racist school. That's a thing. Um, she said, this is a great moment to step up um, because you're right. None of these kids are bad. These aren't, you know, they've just taken it to this place where they think what, what he was saying is that they're bad people. And she's like, I do recommend that he not yell that kind of thing out on the, the playground. <laughs> I was like, yeah, fair enough. But what they did was they talked about it. They all talked about it. And they sat down and they, um, they had a discussion about what happened. And the white kids kept saying over and over, because, you know, my son said to them, I wasn't trying to say you were bad. I was saying that we're all born into a system, me included. And it tells us different things. And if you don't, if you're not trying to actively undo the system, then you're probably keeping it in place. That's all I was saying. And they said, that's not what you said. You said this other thing. And, and the teacher finally said to them, so my son was telling me about this later. And the, and the teacher said a bunch of things that were so smart to them. Like, I, you know, I, I, I understand that you're upset. And they said, if he would have said it differently, we would have done it differently. And she said, well, when was he going to do that? When was he supposed to do that when you were surrounding him? And that was a good moment because they were like, okay, fair enough. And they said, well, it really just hurt our feelings. And she said, I hear you. This is the part that my son told me about, by the way, which like, he told me and I immediately started crying. I'd been really good till that point, I want to say. But, um, but what happened was he said, you know, mom, she said to them, it sounds like your feelings were really hurt. Can you tell me about that? And they said, yeah, it really felt awful. It felt like he made all these assumptions about us, decided who we were, and told us we were bad people or that we're some way that we're not. And it was really awful. And she said, I hear you. That sounds awful. I want you to take a look around the room at every one of your black and brown friends in this room because that has happened to them on a daily basis. They deal with that every day. Yeah. I deal with that every day. And I know I deal with that every day because I deal with it sometimes from some of you. And I said, she said that? And he said, she said that. And I said, what did you do? And he said, oh, mom, I definitely just started crying. 
Oh. And I was like, yeah. And he said, well, why did you cry? And he said, because she just said it like, like you would say it's Tuesday. She just, she wasn't mean. She wasn't angry. She wasn't making anyone like she didn't, she didn't say it in a punishing way. She just said, yeah, I know this is, this is how it is. It's okay. Like, let's talk about it. She just said it. And then we could just talk about it. And it was really interesting to watch the whole learning curve on this. But, you know, they talked about it. And nobody, it wasn't like, I don't, I don't think that it was like, ah, and everyone felt great afterwards. I don't think that at all. I just think they had a complicated conversation. And they're capable of it, as we all are. Like, I had so much hope just even knowing that they tried it, knowing that that teacher went out that way. I just thought, okay, like, all right, America, you've been rough for a while now, but this is something, this is some good movement that, that this teacher did that kind of work and was backed by her institution. Because I should say, it wasn't just that she was one teacher on her own deciding to do this renegade work. It's that the entire institution knew what was happening and they backed her. And I know this because they called me and they said, we understand what happened. Here's our plan. You'd have one group of folks would be like, the moral of that story is that's why we don't talk about race in schools, because you see what happened there. Everyone got all worked up. So that, that's <laughs> one one group of people like, see, that's why we don't talk about it. And and what I learned from that is like, are you kidding me? That's why we have to talk about it. Kids, it, it's <laughs> kids. know, right. So remember, remember being a kid. We knew we mm-hmm. picked up on that vibe in the room. Our parents didn't have to open their mouths. We knew. But for us, our parents were just like, no, it's fine. So we gr- we grew up in a, we don't talk about it. Yeah. And so now as parents, what we're being asked to do with our next generation is we're being asked to do something we didn't experience. So we're in a real yeah. gray area as parents, right? Because we were raised to be quiet. You didn't see anything. It was fine. Mm-hmm. And now what we're doing with our kids, I, I am absolutely inspired by the work that all three of my kids do in school. Just like you're talking about your son moving through the paces, this isn't a conversation you solve. It's a conversation you keep having and talking about racist or anti-racist choices. How do you bring Kendi's work into a classroom? Well, you you sit down and and ask kids, hey, when you were called racist, how did you feel? And you unpack it. That's beautiful. Is it messy? Yes. Do people get agitated? Yes, but it was already messy and agitated before, and we were just pretending not to see it. So let's just go ahead and see it. And that's that that's that myth of when you call something what it is, you have this idea that, oh, now it's become more. Right. No. Actually, when you when you call something what it is, it becomes less. When I look back at what I taught in my early days of teaching, I taught the books that I was taught to teach. All Dead white men. I, that mm-hmm. was racist teaching. I mm-hmm. wasn't trying to be racist, but I absolutely was teaching as racist teaching. So now those are racist choices. I look back and think, how can I, because we called it racist teaching, how can I teach better? How can I make sure more of my students are seen on the page? And if you encounter a racist scene in a book, instead of glossing over it, which is what I would have done, oh, yeah. we're just going to skip. We're not going to read page 222. We're just going to skip to 227, everyone. You just skip mm-hmm. it, right? Because then mm-hmm. maybe they didn't see that word. And I just hang out there and be like, hey, there's some words There's some words in that page that ha- make me have some feelings. Did anybody else have that? Yes, it's beautiful. Because exactly. you're seeing beautiful. the part of the class that's also supposed to pretend like the violence isn't happening to them, right? Yeah. And that's that's to me, is always the scariest part.
History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. else that you talk about in Good Talk, it is a series of conversations with your son, but then you also fan out to other parts of your extended family, to people you encounter. And something that struck me and hit home and made me uncomfortable, but also like made me understand is when you talk about how your partner Jed's parents, your parents-in-law, mm-hmm. um, voted for Donald Trump in 2016. And um, my own in-laws, like, I don't know, uh, fully three-fourths of the in-laws, I feel like I know. Yeah, they mostly voted for Donald Trump in 2016. It became an absolute landmine in our family Mm -hmm. to figure out how to allow them to grow in relationship with my children, their grandchildren, whom my in-laws love, right? So uh, how to hold these two truths, right? Mm -hmm. That my in-laws simultaneously espouse beliefs that I found hateful, homophobic, homophobic, sexist, racist, all the things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Awful. But my in-laws are loving ch- love, loving people. They've loved me and my children. They've, you know, how to hold those to- two truths. I think we, mm-hmm. it's so easy to assume that everyone's like all one thing or all another. And in this book anyway, I saw you really working to hold those two things at the same time and and really breaking in half sometimes trying to do it. Yeah. Um, what was what was it like to write those sections? Well, I think, you know, what the other thing is that you're bringing up is that I think there is a sort of pervasive myth in America that love is the opposite of racism, right? Mm-hmm. Or that love yeah. is the cure for racism, which is just bullshit. That's like a thing that we tell ourselves so that if we love someone, it means that we don't actually have to consider their humanity or what our choices are doing to their lives because you love them. Yeah. Right. And that was something that I also had to contend with. And it's very painful to contend with that. But it's also, again, it's like, it is a sort of a thing to unpack because if, if love isn't the opposite of racism, right. Then, then what is, so one of the things that happens um, in an interracial relationship is I think there are, two sort of pervasive ideas about an interracial relationship in America. One is that it's going to heal this country. Like all of our beige babies are going to come and just save America. 
um, because it's the melting pot and everyone's just going to be this other thing eventually. So why are we even complaining? I don't know about that option. Okay, that that's one. That's option A. That's one option. The other option is that one or the other person in the interracial relationship doesn't like themselves enough to be with their own kind. Mm. And so both of those things are really rough, right? One is a complete fantasy, uh, an idealistic fantasy. And the other one is a, like a great, it's just a, it's like a, an incredible amount of shame to throw on someone and a big assumption about whether or not they love themselves based on the color of the person that they marry. It's wild. Is there another choice? I have A and B. Is there a choice C? No, I mean, the, the, choice, <laughs> well, the choice C is, is probably closer to the truth, which is that the thing that I think about a lot is this idea that I can both be very in love with my partner, who is white and Jewish, and also um, we can have all sorts of dynamics in our marriage that reinforce this kind of casual racism. It's true, right? It's true that it will come into our marriage. There's no place that is safe from it. So we just have to talk about it. So if if even with my partner, it's going to come up and I'm going to not be seen at certain times, and I'm going to have to yell really loud or I'm going to have to say, what are you doing? If that's even going to happen with my partner, then then I think I can expect it from every other intimate relationship I'm in. Right. And so part of what you saw in that book was me reckoning with the weight of that, with the idea that it's, that it's always going to be there. And it had already, and I think part of what I was trying to get at was it had already, it had already been there. It had already been there. I had just been so trained not to see it out of fear, you know, and out of hope. And that fear and hope had nowhere, it, that fear and hope did not help get us anywhere else that we needed to be during that 2016 election. Like those things, it turns out, are not great weapons against. No. I kept thinking that, well, if we just remind them how much they love their grandchildren, they'll vote differently. And you're right. Love love did not turn out to be a tool to change the way someone votes. Like if I'll just convince them, remember your your kids and how your middle granddaughter needed surgery and, and our health care was rejected. And the only right. way that we, you know, if I just right. remind them, if I can just wake them up and... You can't, or at least we couldn't. No. Uh, then, right? And um, it made it made me hate them mm. some days, and then I hated myself for hating them because, again, they love my kids. And just realizing that love and hate aren't the right words to use when it comes to political activism with your in-laws. That probably figuring out. Okay, I, I guess I should back up. What was really hard for me was to know what to say to the kids. Mm-hmm. That, you know, like mm-hmm. I could, I could actually like, all right, I, I, I'm an adult. I know plenty of adults I know out there who don't vote the way I do. Mm-hmm. But it was hard to know what to say to my, you know, my daughter's now 17. She'll be yeah. able to vote next year. Yeah. You know, what to say to her when she wants to talk about the autonomy of her body <sighs> and yeah. uh, and and her grandmother's disagreeing with that, how to allow her to have some kind of relationship with her grandmother, but also to espouse beliefs that I wholly want her to espouse. Um, Yeah. What did you say to her? Nothing good sometimes (laughs) on the subway. Yes. I feel like there's, again, like the conversations that you have in your own home. I mean, part of what I talked to her about was like, 
the the recent rulings are um, egregious, as you and yeah. I both know. Yep. And like it or not, as upper middle class voters here in America, you and I are not the the uterus having people. These are going to affect. Yeah. Because if you yep. need if you need to have these services, you and I are going to get in a car, or we're going to like we we are in a position to make sure that we receive the health care that our bodies require. Yeah. And I said, so what I need you to do is be angry, but I also need you to know on whose behalf you're angry. Yeah. Because right. if it's not you that's affected, who is? Right. Because I've lived I've lived in the South in this country. I've lived mm-hmm. in rural places in this country. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you what it's like to be a teacher teaching a 14-year-old girl who was pregnant <sighs> and didn't want to have that baby, have baby and didn't know how to tell her grandmother who she was living with any of that. And so the yeah. solution for her was to have the baby at 14. Yeah. And I said, yeah. this is, and so helping my daughter also see not just to be like her own, who you're angry about, but like, look at the folks who who are affected and how can we be part of that change we want to see. But as yeah. far as the grandparents, hell, I don't know. You just don't talk about it, which is the opposite of what I feel like we've been saying this whole time. But, yeah. I mean, <sighs> It's funny because I feel like now with my son, he notices things. And I think he, I think that it's really interesting because I think he can talk to them in a way that I can't, you know, Mm. like he can say things in a way that he can just engage with them in a different way. And I notice him doing it. Like I notice him, you know, ribbing them and, or my father-in-law has now died, but, you know, I noticed that even, even before there were just little things that he would do. He'd be like, oh, wait, you know, he was sort of joking, like, wait, are, are you guys still not believing in global warming? And then he'd giggle a little <laughs> bit and he'd be like, are we still doing that? You know, and they wouldn't yell at him because they were like, okay, buddy, we're not talking about that. And he's like, okay, we're not talking about it, but you do, don't you? You know, it's very uh, funny. He could, he can kind of tease them a little bit more. And I think it's okay for him to also know that that you can love, that you can love these people and also you can really dislike some of the things they put into the world. And it's, and it's a very complicated feeling that you are capable of that complicated feeling. It doesn't make you less than to hold on to the complication of that feeling, right? There were points at which my family was pretty heartbroken over the decision that my in-laws made. And I mean, my family, I mean, like my mother, my brother, you know, my cousins, because they were scared. You know, they were like, why did you marry into this family? They're not going to protect you. Um, and I think one of the things that I, I had to kind of remind myself and them of is this, is this is one part of what's happening. Also, they're really good parents to my husband. Also, they're really good grandparents to my grandson. Also, like this thing, the thing that Trump wants more than anything is for all of us to hate each other and to never see past that. And if this is what my resistance looks like, my resistance looks like imagining a day where we might be able to actually talk about this, or we might actually be able to see each other, or just staying in the room for the possibility of that conversation, then that's what my resistance looks like, right? It's not a perfect thing. It's never going to look perfect, and nor am I going to feel particularly like righteous about it. It doesn't always feel great to stay in those rooms. But for me, for the most part, I've stayed in where I thought when I thought I could, um, and I've tried to, I've tried to not disparage myself for doing that because I think it's really easy to turn to yourself and to kind of Twitter yourself, 
basically, where you hold yourself up to some impossible ideal and ask yourself what kind of a human you are if you, you know, if you're still talking to this person. Well, I'm just a human that's a human that's humaning. So there's that, you know, not the best, not the worst, trying to love, trying to teach my son that it is okay to love. I do think that there is so much hateful rhetoric that doesn't, it doesn't really change where we are, not in the way that these deeper conversations do. I have this belief that if, again, if I just give your book to every voter in America and we all talk about it all the time and we, and we, with our flawed, we're going to, we're going to get there. We're get somewhere. I know where there is, but that we're going to, we're going to do the work that we've not been doing and have the conversations we've not been having and that our children are going to help lead that way, that we're going to move them to places that we were not necessarily able to get to ourselves. I mean, I don't, I, I absolutely, you know, you've seen the, the, the list of banned books growing and growing, right? Are you on there? No, no, no. I'm just <gasps> saying like, I, I think that that is a testimony to how much books can change a conversation. The list of banned books that is growing and growing that talks about all this stuff, Kendi's book, you know, like so many, yeah. you know, 16, 19, like all of these books that talk about this in a very smart and sound and knowledgeable way, the idea that they're they're being banned is a testimony to that idea that if people knew if they had an inkling on how to have these talks or how to unpack them or how to have real historical understanding of where they've, you know, where they've come from, instead of just saying like, I didn't do any of that. I didn't benefit from any of that. Of course you did. Of course you did. Right. Um, Yeah. That that alone would change a lot. I do think that that's, I think that that's absolutely true. It does change a lot. And I would love to see, I, I mean, I did get to say, I will tell you, um, I did get to go to a few high schools where they, high schools and colleges where they've, um, they've read the book or it's been their book of the year. Um, and it's really amazing to go and talk to those people, you know, those smart, smart people with their smart, smart brains that are like, we got to change everything. And I'm like, go, go forward. You incredibly smart people. It is really wild to, to both hear from them. Like simple things. Like I didn't know I could be brown and queer. And then you just like drew it and I could show it to my parents and be like, see, like we yeah. exist. Simple things like yeah. that too. You know, I felt seen for the first time by a book. And that also feels really good. Oh, absolutely. And am I to understand that you were not a graphic? I, I've read, um, I've read a Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing and some of your shorter pieces, but I've never seen that you've drawn anything else. So no, yeah, I taught myself how to draw for this book. I mean, I I drew in journals and stuff, but I had to really uh, bear down and figure it out for this book. So you thought to yourself. I'm going to talk about these really hard things to talk about. And my vehicle is going to be also this really hard thing I've never done. Yes, but it was so much easier to learn how to draw than it was to try to imagine writing sentences to um, to explain these exact same things to an audience of people who were never going to want to read them. And if they did read them, would use every single bit of that sentence to deny what I was saying. It's masterful. I Again, I thought I had ordered the wrong book, and then I opened it up, and I was just enamored. I also listened to the audio play that you guys did 
That was great fun. Oh, yeah. So I listened to the I, – I was driving. I'm like, let me refresh because I'm talking to her next week. I've read the book. Let me just listen. And it's it's the same book, but it, it's the the play version of it is is really is really great fun. You guys did a tremendous job. Oh, I'm so glad. There. I've never I've never listened to it because I can't stand my own voice. But I love Stop. doing the audiobooks. <sighs> I love doing. I did that for Sleepwalkers too. For Sleepwalkers, yeah. I love. I really love doing the audiobook part of publishing. Is the unexpected joy of my life. Well, you're you very know. good at it. So get over yourself and listen to it because it's it's, <laughs> okay. it's triumphant. Mira Jacob, I could talk to you all day, but I can't. So, all right, so I got to do a wind down. Um, okay, kind of just kind of like the closing here. Yep, um, yep. What are you working on next? What can we look forward to down the pipeline? Okay, well, I'm doing. Um, I just finished writing a pilot script for a show based on Good Talk, so we'll see how that goes. <gasps> what? Um, yeah, Amazing. I'm really excited. Um, and then the other thing that I'm doing, I'm writing a mystery right now mm-hmm. about a white passing Indian actress who is murdered. I'm excited to hear and learn more about both of those. Yay. All right. We always close with right. a few icebreakers. These are just um, multiple choice. You just pick okay. one. Let's see. Coffee or tea? Coffee. But it was tea until I was 40. So coffee. No. <laughs> It's a line of demarcation. <laughs> uh, mountains or beach? Beach. Uh, early bird or night owl? Oh, God. I don't sleep, so both. Are you a sleepwalker? I, I do not sleep very much at all. It's terrible. I sleep wow. like five, maybe six hours a night. Oh, you can call me. Um, Michael Jackson or Air Supply? Oh, my God. You know that from both of my books, <laughs> didn't you? I mean, I have to no. go with Air Supply. I have to go with Air Supply. I'm all out of love. I'm, I'm so, so lost without you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're feeling it. I mm-hmm. just forgot how much I love Air Supply until I read that book, and I was skimming over it. I'm like, oh, my God. I've got it. It's such just, a— oh. It's such a teenage girl obsession, to say. too. Like, I just love that she's, like, so into them. And it's not even a time where it's cool to be into them. People are like, why you and the air supply? And it's just, she's really feeling them. The number of of us, though, who are into air supply and never, like, said it out loud. Yeah. This is probably the first time I'm admitting it. Yeah, of course. I freaking loved air supply. For sure. Yeah, let's listen to air supply immediately when this is over. Okay, go (laughs) on. I'm about to. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Are you loud or quiet? Oh, um... I mean, I'm going to say loud. I'm going to say loud. I mean, I'm a writer, so most of the time I'm quiet, but I feel like in my own brain, I'm always having conversations with people and they're very loud. (laughs) Are you a risk taker or the person who always knows where the Band-Aids are? Risk taker. If you could time travel, would you go back or forward? (gasps) Oh my gosh. Okay. So here's the deal. I think about this all the time. Um, I would go forward, but I would want to go back. But if I go back, I have to have all sorts of amulets and things with me so that just by the nature of me being brown and a woman, I don't get instantly, you know, enslaved or, you know, all of the very bad things that happened to brown women in the past. I have to have, so like I have a secret cave and I have, this is so weird that I'm telling you this, but in my secret cave, I have like all sorts of things that like invisible ink and fireworks and like things in the time past that like people wouldn't necessarily know. So I could convince them that I'm magic so that I can live among them as a God. Thank you. That's, yeah. All right. So the answer, as I understand it, is to go back with 
tools and, and an air supply mm-hmm. to uh, mm-hmm. convince them that you're a gut. I love that answer. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. fantabulous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like an iPad it's, that I can plug in somewhere to be like, look at the magic box. We'll show you things. I mean, you know, just like, I just have to be able to convince them that I know things they couldn't possibly. So I can just be like cool in my body and walk around and see everything I need to see. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Uh, what's one of your favorite books or movies or both? Mm. Oh my God. What? My partner's latest movie yesterday for the first time. He it's makes called, documentary films. He does. And it's called Rudy, a docu-musical. Stop. It's a new genre that he invented. Um, it is, in fact, a documentary musical about Rudy Giuliani. And... <laughs> I loved it so much that I kept waking up in the middle of the night laughing about it. Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, I had seen, like, we, you know, we, we work on, we, we show each other stuff all the time. And we work on stuff all the time. So I'd seen bits and pieces of it, but I hadn't seen it all together. And I was really excited. And I, I just want to apologize to, like, future me who's going to listen to this part and be like, you jerk. Why would you even talk about your own stuff? But I'm just excited that, you know, when you live with someone and it's very exciting to see them do something creatively wild and new. And I think I'm just, uh, I'm just a buzz and a, and a glow in this moment. Future Mira, stop judging. It's okay. It's like one moment that you're allowed to be excited about this. Okay. Fantastic. We will be on the lookout for it because it's apparently not available for viewing except in your living room right now. Yeah. It's going to be premiering in Tribeca in June um, at the Tribeca Film Festival. And then hopefully it will be at other places after. Yay. We will be on the lookout. Um, okay, favorite ice cream? Oh, mint chocolate chip. Right. Mm-hmm. And then last one, if we were to take a picture of you really happy doing something you love, what would we see? Oh, okay. You would probably see me in New Mexico with my mom being fed all the amazing things my mother makes me to eat when I go home. Yeah. That's where I would be. I would just be stuffing my face at my mom's kitchen counter in New Mexico and trying not to laugh because she's very, very funny and a very good cook. (laughs) The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing made me feel many things, but among the top three was hunger. Why it didn't come with like a side of like just a small chapati, just just some. (laughs) I'm not asking for all the curry, Mm -hmm. but why the book doesn't come with just a small sampling. There was no tamarind sauce in mine. Folks, today our guest has been Mira Jacobs. She's the author of the recent memoir, Good Talk, which again, if everyone could just do their homework, buy it, read it, give it to everyone you know. And also her novel Sleepwalker's Guide, which we didn't talk to, the Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing we didn't talk about, but is so tender and beautiful. I read them in reverse order, so I read Good Talk first, and then, of course, did the thing where I try to go back and read everything by the person. And it's just lovely, and you get to spend more time and do a deep dive into um, a beautiful story. I lived in Seattle, I think, when you lived in Seattle. I don't know why we didn't hang. Um, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) We'll, We'll link to all this on the show notes page, guys. Read her books, share her books, and to everyone listening, we're wishing you love and light wherever this day takes you. Be good to yourself, be good to one another, and we will see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrove and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up. 
on 5-Minute News. I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.